Kids, you can take off to your classrooms. Hallelujah. Well, how's everybody doing this morning? Let's go ahead and just lift up our hands. Father, we just thank you for your presence here in this place. We thank you that we could set this time aside for you. This is our time that we've given to you, Lord, and I thank you, Lord, whenever we show up and we gather in your name, your word says that when we're gathered, that there you are in the midst of us. So we just say welcome. We say thanks for being here with us. Thanks for touching our hearts and working in our hearts in ways that only you can do. And so we just let the guard down and we just say, Jesus, do your work. And we thank you for it. In his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, last week we, uh, we took some time and we listened to Dr. Kirk Dubois uh, to speak on some things concerning um, end times and everything. And that was, that was really good. Um, when I was at, at Rama, uh, I didn't have Dr. Dubois. I had a different man named uh, John McCallum. And uh, he was excellent in it, but uh, man, I, I love listening to Dr. Kirk. He's just very, he's no nonsense. He, he's, uh, he, um, he comes from a, 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 a hippie background of he was saved in the 70s on the beaches during the Jesus revivals throughout California, and he's, he's never lost that edge. He's like, I don't care about religion. I don't care about all your tradition. I care about Jesus and what his word says. And I, I just love how Dr. Kirk is just no nonsense. And so he teaches what, what is called eschatology, which is study of the end times. And, and uh, uh, when he was saying some things last week, and we have to understand, that was a very quick synopsis that he did. And I, I wanted to show that to you because, you know, I see and I hear so much from Christians in this generation. We see the things that they post on Facebook and Twitter and all this ridiculousness that is just like, have you even read your Bible? You know, like, the, so I wanted to bring some balance to things like that where people are like, oh, we are, we're in the tribulation right now. And that's what Dr. Kirk was talking about last week. He's like, no, like, this is the wars that you'll see then. That's not happened. Or people saying what's happening right now in the Middle East, oh, everything started. No, there's certain players that need to be involved for that to be the case that aren't. And that's not to say that in the future they won't be. But right now, this is not the end. You know, uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul said that you won't know the day or the hour, but you can know the season. You can know the season. And in my heart, when I, when I study these things, and when I, read, I believe we're, we're in the beginnings of the ends. Things are ramping up, but we are not in at the very end. We are not in the last things. And so as Dr. Kirk was speaking last week, uh, I really had some things that were stirring on my heart that I'm like, as a pastor, I want to make sure that we have a good foundation on. We have, we have a good understanding of so that we're not carried away in, in some of the ridiculousness that some Christians fall into. As I said, as we started last week, in every road, there's ditches on both sides, right? You can pull too far in one direction just as much as you can pull too far in the other way. And it's important to let the Word of God be a balancing for you. And what does it actually say, not what do you actually feel? You know, it's easy to let your feelings be the guide when the Word of God has said something different. And so when we talk about end times, that's not something that we need to be scared of. There is no bad news for the Christian. And so if, you, if what you've heard about end times makes you fearful, or as Toph and I have had lots of conversations about this in the past, if it makes you want to buy bullets and canned food and hide in a cave, that's not God. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You have to understand, you live in the church age. You live in that age of grace, and the commandment of the church is to go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature and every nation. And, and so when, when we have to keep our commission, our calling, what God has told the church to do, in balance with what you see people doing, if it's causing them to withdraw from the world, hang on, there's a lot of Christians out there that they they. they to have a 10-foot pole. Don't come any closer, world. How can you win the world if you've never in them? Come on. So there's a lot of Christians that want to withdraw from the world, and they say, oh, things are getting dark. Things are getting dark. Read your Bible. There's good things that are planned for the church. There's a harvest to be reaped out there. And so 
if we withdraw from the world and we live in fear of what's to come, that's not God. There's no bad news for the believer. And I've grown up in the church, and so I've seen a lot of craziness that can happen when you talk about end times theology and things. People just get weird. People just do stupid things, and they believe really odd things. And my job as a pastor is to help you bring balance so that you don't end up in ditches on either side of the road. So it's not a topic that we can ignore, but it's also not a topic that we're going to spend a ton of time on because knowing who you are in Christ Jesus is more important. Knowing that you are the righteousness of God is more important. Knowing how to walk in faith is more important because that's for the time you live in. And so when we talk about end times theology, there's one side that says, well, you just can't know. You know, and Paul already said, you won't know the day or the hour, but you'll know the season. You know, Jesus told a parable about ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come back. That's a type of Jesus' return. And it said five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. And so while they were waiting, five of them brought provisions of oil to keep their lamps lit longer than they thought they might need. Where the other five, the foolish, they only brought enough for that day. And so as the bridegroom came, they had run out of oil. And when the bridegroom came, the five that had oil in their lamps went in with him. And the, uh, the foolish said, hey, give us some of your oil. And what we need to know is that oil is always a type of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And when you have the anointing and listening to the unction of the Holy Spirit, he will get you where you need to be with what you need when that time is there. When we ignore the Holy Spirit, we end up without the resources that we need for the age that we're living in. And so five were ready because they had that unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit. They knew the season. And so you can know the season. And actually, God always tells you ahead of time what he's going to do. He doesn't keep anything secret. And here in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, the prophet Amos says, Surely the Lord God does nothing. Everyone say nothing. Unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And so he says the Lord makes no moves. He makes no major moves unless he's already revealed ahead of time what he's going to do. How, how can he do that? He is the God who knows the end from the beginning. He touches all points in between. He knows what's going to happen, and he already knows what's happened. And so it's very easy for him to tell you what's coming. He's already living in it. Ezekiel described God as a wheel within a wheel. And if you think of it like a bike bike wheel, how you have that center hub, and then you have all the spokes that go out to the outer side. The center is God. The outside is time. And he touches all of the points all at the same time. So it's easy for him to tell you what's going to happen. He already knows. He saw every decision you will ever make. He lets you make the decision, but he knows what you're going to choose. Because he sees the end from the beginning. And so we shouldn't get wrapped up in, a, oh, what's going to happen? He's already told you what's going to happen. And for the church, it's nothing but good news. And so let's see God doing that very thing, revealing what he's going to do to his prophets. Here in Genesis chapter 18, we have the story of Abraham. And at this point in Abraham's life, God has already made covenant with him. He's made promise to him, you're going to have a son. It's not going to be Elias of Damascus. That's not going to be your heir. You're going to have a son from you and Sarah, and he's going to be the son of promise. So God has already made that covenant and those promises to him. And in Genesis chapter 18, the Lord shows up with two angels, and they remind Abraham of the promise. And they sit down. They have a meal with Abraham, and they're talking about it, and they remind Sarah of the promise, and Sarah was in the other room listening, and when the Lord said it, Sarah laughed, and the Lord said to Sarah, why did you laugh? And she's like, oh, I didn't laugh, and he said, no, you did laugh, and what I've told you will come to pass. 
And so what happens is they end up having that son, and what do they call him? They call him Isaac, the son of laughter. Sarah did laugh in mocking, but her laughter was turned into laughter of joy. And so during that time, the Lord's talking openly with Abraham. And as, as the Lord and uh, the two angels get up to leave, it says, we'll pick it up in Genesis 18, verse 16. It says, then the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went out with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? What did Amos say? The Lord always reveals ahead of time. He says, should I hide what I'm doing from Abraham? Since surely Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth in him shall be blessed. And so he tells Abraham, I've got to go, and we've got to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah. They've become evil continually. And if we don't, it's, you want to know what Sodom and Gomorrah was? It's as if you had an infected limb that was gangrenous. What do they do? They cut it off so that it doesn't spread to the rest. And it's just like in the story of Noah. It said the, the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. The Lord had to stem that off so that the entire generation wouldn't be lost. And so the Lord says to Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. And Abraham says this back to God. He says, Lord, what if there were 50 righteous people in the city? And the Lord said, I wouldn't destroy it if there was 50 in there. And so that obviously triggers something in Abraham. Well, at least there's not, there's not even 50 people that serve the Lord. So he starts modifying his number, and he goes, what if there was 40, God? And he said, I wouldn't destroy it if there was 40 righteous people in the city. This is not a good city. He goes down, and he's like, what if there was 30 in the city, Lord? And he says, I wouldn't destroy it if there was 30. And Abraham goes all the way down to 10, and the Lord says, if there was 10 righteous people in the city... I would save the city because of them. But there wasn't. There was one. Lot. <laughs> there was one. And Abraham stopped at ten. I believe the Lord was had such an open relationship with Abraham that he would have went right down to one if Abraham would have. But Abraham stopped, not God. And so Abraham says, okay, ten. There's not ten. And the Lord and the two angels went on their way. You want to know how wicked the city of, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was, when those two angels showed up into the city to collect Lot, the townspeople gathered around Lot's house and surrounded and said, send the angels out, we want to rape them. Come on, the Bible is not a kid's story. I was listening to an atheist this week, and he's like, oh, I don't know why all these people believe these fairy tale kid stories that you hear in the Bible. The Bible is not a kid's book. Seriously, if they made a movie about the life of David, it would, it would be so hard for it not to be a rated R movie because David had a very eventful life. <laughs> and so the Bible is not a kid's book. And there's things that are not appropriate for your children in that in there at in certain seasons of their life and so they that's what happened but what the lord did is he went in and he removed the righteous out of the city before the destruction and that is a picture type and shadow of what is coming for the church before the end times tribulation can even happen the lord comes and takes his church out because the Lord always delivers the righteous ahead of time. The book of Thessalonians, Paul told them that we, the church, have not been appointed to wrath. And so a good place to start when, when we're looking ahead at end times thing, what's next for the church? Before anything can kick off, the Lord's bringing the church home. He's taking it. And so a lot of times we look at the scriptures between the rapture and the second coming, and we, miss the, we mix them up. When the Lord comes for his church, we go and meet him in the air. When he comes in the second coming, he comes down and he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, and he comes down with eyes of flames of fire and a tongue of steel. You know, that's, the, that's where he takes the wicked off the earth and sweeps them away. And so what's next for the church is the Lord's going to call you, call us all home to him, and you'll know that season in your heart. You won't know the day, you won't know the hour, but you'll know the season if you're listening to the Holy Spirit.
And the generation that we live in, we are on a timeline. There are things happening that have only happened in your lifetime that have not happened in the last 2,000 years because things are ramping up. You have to understand, if we look at the picture and type and shadow of creation, what did the Lord? The Lord worked for six days, and he rested on the seventh. The Bible says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years here. There was 2,000 years from the garden to Abraham. There's been 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus' first coming, and we are now standing on the edge of 2,000 years from Jesus to where we are right now. That's six days. And the book of Revelation tells us that there will be a thousand-year rest or a millennial reign with Christ, that seventh day of rest. And so we are bumping up at the end of the sixth day, and on the seventh day, we rest with the Lord. And so we are on a timeline, and there are things that only have only happened in your generation that cannot be said at any other point since Jesus left the earth 2,000 years ago. And so we need to understand what's happening and that there is a timeline. The Lord is long-suffering, but he is not forever suffering. James tells us that he's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth to be received. But he's not going to wait forever because he's put himself on a timeline that will not change. When he came at his first coming, it said when the fullness of time, Jesus came as a baby. The second coming will be no different. When the timeline has hit, he will return. There's only so much time he allotted. And that shouldn't bring us fear to know that that's coming. That should be an excitement. I get to see Jesus in my lifetime. He's coming back physically for his church to receive them unto himself. And so we can know the times and the season by listening to the Holy Spirit so that you're not caught unaware. Even in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, there was, amongst the nation, there was the sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So in the Old Covenant, there was people that had an understanding of the times so they would know what to do. In the New Covenant, there's people with an understanding of the times because they listen to the Holy Spirit and they know just what to do in every situation. And so the Lord is coming back. He said the same way he left is the same way he'll return. In the book of Acts and at the end of the book of John, we see him go up into heaven. And that's the way he will descend back and he'll call us up into the air with him to be with him. Now, let's, we don't have to be uh, caught up in the mentality of, oh, you just can't know. The book of Hebrews says that eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that Lord has prepared for those that love him. But then he says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And so whenever somebody says you can't know, no, the Holy Spirit is the great revealer. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go, I'll send another comforter to you. He will lead you and guide you into all truth. He will show you things to come. And he will bring all things to your remembrance, the things which I have told you. The Holy Spirit is a great revealer. So whenever you think, oh, I just can't know, yes, you can. The Holy Spirit is the revealer. So let's think about Jesus' first coming. When Jesus came the first time, there was over 300 prophecies concerning that coming that were fulfilled. 300. Things like they knew where he was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. They knew those things. Isaiah had prophesied that he would go to the cross as a lamb going to slaughter, silent. And so there was over 300 details that were given regarding his first coming. And the children of Israel knew them, they just didn't believe them. Come on, think about this for a second. When the wise men came looking for Jesus, following the star, they came to Herod. 
to see if Herod, King Herod, knew where he was born. And he's like, I don't know, but if you find him, come back so I can come and worship. And that's not what he wanted to do. Come back so I can kill him. I don't want anybody else to be king but me. He was the fake king that Rome had put in place to be a fake ruler, to try and keep the Jewish people under control. And so after the, the, the wise men left, Herod called the scribes and said, tell me where he will be born. And they said, oh, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And so what did Herod do? He sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the children because he didn't know which one would be Jesus. But thank God for the leading of the Holy Spirit and God knowing things ahead of time. He sent an angel to Joseph and saying, take Mary and take Jesus and go to Egypt until I tell you. And he even funded the journey through the wise men. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those were valuable things that funded their escape into Egypt until it was time to come back. And so they knew the details. They knew the prophecies, but they didn't believe them. They weren't looking. And until the wise men showed up, they were like, oh, maybe we should remind ourselves of these things. Let's look at one of Jesus' disciples. As Jesus begins to call his disciples, one of them goes off and they find Nathanael sitting under a tree and they say, we found the Messiah. And Nathanael said back to them, he's like, who? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why would he say that? Because he knew that the Messiah came out of Bethlehem, but he didn't know that's where Jesus was born. And so they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sitting under the tree. And he said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus is like, what, you're amazed at that? Just wait a little bit. You'll see some more things, Nathaniel. You'll see the heavens open up, and you'll see angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. And so Nathaniel knew the details enough to know that Jesus, the Messiah, was not going to come out of Nazareth. He would come out of Bethlehem. And so at Jesus' first coming, there were over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled. Now, let's think about his second coming. There are almost 2,500 prophecies concerning his second coming. If the first 300 of his first coming were all fulfilled perfectly, flawlessly, every one of them, there's 2,500. That's a lot more. And so when we say you can't know, we just say, you didn't look. And the thing is that some of them have already begun to come to pass in your lifetime. Well, I didn't know that. There's probably a lot we don't know. There's a lot of things that have already been happening that we don't know. You know, there's just cool little things like you know, the, the, bath, the ritual bath sites around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem have begun to fill up for the first time in over 2,000 years since the destruction of the temple in 2000 AD. The rains that they have been having in the nation of Israel have caused those baths to fill up for the first time in 2,000 years. Why is that important? When the church is removed, they go back to seven years of Old Covenant and they begin to do the ritual sacrifices again and they will be needed. Something else that's happened only in your lifetime. During recent excavations, they were looking where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they discovered a vial of the anointing oil that the Israelites would use to anoint their priests and their kings. And you say, well, why is that significant? It's the same strain that they used in the Bible and it will be used to anoint the Antichrist when he sits down on the Temple Mount and declares himself God. It has been restored. We have not had that for 2,000 years, but in your lifetime, just recently, they have it now. There's the Temple Mount Institute that is currently preparing to rebuild the temple. Why? Because in the tribulation, they will rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, and the Antichrist will sit down and declare himself God. 
there's that same Temple Mount Institute is already preparing now for ritual sacrifices. They have bred the line of a purebred red heifer in order to make those sacrifices possible. That has not, something that has not happened in 2,000 years. That is just a few little things out of the 2,500 prophecies that are already beginning to take place in your generation. Not somebody else's generation. It's not happened in 2,000 years, but it's happened in yours. Why? Because things are getting prepared for what is to come, and time is getting short. And again, that should not bring us fear. That should make us excited. You know, I, I, we grew up in church singing, soon and very soon we are going to see the king. And there was an expectation bred in us that the Lord is going to return that I think has been lost a lot to this generation. And I remember hearing those things and I think like, well, but there's so much that I want to do. God knows what's in your heart to do. And you don't think that heaven's going to be fun? Come on. It's going to be a good time. I remember Jesse Duplantis talking about his vision of heaven and how there was he met people that were heading out to their country home rather than just staying in their city home. Because God knows if you like to sit in the woods and hunt. He knows what you enjoy to do. I like what Joseph Moore says. He, he's really great at all this stuff and studies it really in depth. He's like, well, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing during the millennial reign of Christ. I'm going to golf at every golf course that I can. I'm going to be on St. Andrews as much as I can because I love to golf and God knows what I love to do. Why do we get this idea that religion paints into our head that we're going to be floating on clouds playing harps? No, it says you will rule and reign with him. Heaven is not going to be a boring place. Come on, but I like to eat and we won't need to eat. God, Jesus, in his glorified body after he rose up, he called his disciples, hey guys, you're out there fishing, come on in. Come and sit, I've made some fish for you. Did he need to eat? No, but did he? Yes. Come on, I even think of like transportation. How much time do you spend waiting in traffic? Jesus, man, he just all of a sudden, boom, was in the room. It says that the doors were shut and locked and the disciples were inside and all of a sudden Jesus was there. You don't even have to use the door anymore. Heaven is not going to be boring and you don't have to get the idea that if Jesus were to return, I may miss out on something. You're not going to miss out on anything. He knows your desires better than you know your desires. He knows what makes you happy and heaven is not going to be a boring place for you. And so when we think about this idea of, oh, well, we can't know or whatever, well, then why did Paul spend so much time talking about the second coming of God? He, you know, he only talked about baptism 12 times, and that's a pillar of the church. Be saved and be baptized. He only talked about it 12 times, but he talked about the second coming 52 times because there was an expectation that it was going to be a reality of something that was going to happen. He even went as far to tell the Thessalonians, he says, I'm not telling you something I learned from somebody else. This is what God told me. And he taught them about the return of the Lord and the, 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 the church going be, to be with him. He told the Thessalonians that there's so much power with authority that's been given to the church that the man of perdition, the Antichrist, can't even be removed until the church is out of the way. Because it's a restraining force. Because Jesus said, all power and authority has been given unto me. You, therefore, go ahead and take it. Use it. He said, I give you all power over all the works of the enemy. He can't do, the enemy can't do what he wants to do while you're around. Because all it takes is you to say, no, and he has to stop. That's why the church is removed. Because the things of the end can't happen until you're out of the way. That should give you joy right now in the day you live when you understand God entrusted you with so much power, the enemy is insignificant to you. So even Jesus talked about these things with his disciples. In Luke chapter 21, him and his disciples were walking along beside the temple. And he began to teach them about end times things, and they were asking him questions. And he said to them, he's like, guys, you see this temple? This temple will be torn down. Every brick will be removed. 
And for them, that's something like, well, that's not going to happen. Why, why would we tear apart every brick? Well, you know what happened just a few years from then? There was another rebellion in the city of Jerusalem, and the Roman armies surrounded the city and started destroying the city and killing the people because they were done with these rebellious Jews. And the temple accidentally got caught on fire, and it was, the walls were overlaid with gold, and that gold began to run down in between the bricks. And the Romans were like, well, I'm taking the gold and so they tore apart every brick so that they could get at the gold and the splendor out of it and so Jesus told his disciples several years before that the temple's going to be destroyed and he said in the day that that happens when the, you see the city surrounded and if you're not in the city don't go back into the city I don't care if you need supplies go run hide and that was fulfilled in, in uh, the year 70, shortly after Jesus went home, because that was something Jesus told them would happen, and the temple will not be rebuilt until we're out of here. And so he began to tell them more as they asked him questions. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, it says, There will be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity in the sea and waves and roaring. So Jesus said, at the end times, you're going to begin to see signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. We'll get on that second. Peter picked up on that same uh, thread in Acts chapter 2 where he begins to quote the, uh, the prophet Joel. And he says, it shall come to pass in the last days, Acts 2.17, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirits in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. He said, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before. Everyone say, before. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so he's saying, before the Lord returns, you're going to begin to see signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And he says that it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he said those things will begin to happen before he comes back. And so back to Luke 21, it says there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now, for a modern society, that means very little to us. But to ancient cultures, they spent a lot of time watching the sun watching the moon and watching the stars, determining when was a good time to plant, when do we think harvest is going to be. They watch those things. We are so distracted by so much that goes on. I don't sit out and watch the stars. I can barely see the stars because of all the light pollution. They didn't have that problem. <clears throat> and so they tracked the sun phases and the moon phases and what stars were where and wh at what times. They knew when things were out of sorts or when things looked different. You know, in the day that we live in, our sun this year is acting very different than it has in the last 2,000 years. I read an article in CNN back in July. This is not like I'm not quoting some Christian guy who studied this. This is a worldly thing, very left-leaning too, biased organization. We're talking about how this year, 2023, that there has been more solar flares in the sun than we've seen in any time recent. There's been more corona mass ejections than we've seen. Why? The sun is behaving different than it has in the past. Here in 2023, we just finished what is called a tetrad of four blood moons. Now, when we talk about blood moons, we're not talking about the sun. Jesus said that you'll see the moon turn to blood. That's, we're not saying physically the moon turned to blood. A blood moon is what we call certain phases of the moon. Where super moons and harvest moons, again, we don't watch these things. Ancient cultures did. And that's what, because they knew when to plant and when to harvest based off of them. And so we've had something rare happen in this year of 2023. We finished a tetrad of four blood moons back to back. Those are eclipses, and we call them blood moons because it generally makes this moon look a little more orangey red. 
It's not like the moon physically turned to blood. Why is that significant that that happened this year? Well, when else in history have we seen a tetrad of four blood moons? You want to know? In 1492, it happened with the edict of expulsion of the Jews out of Spain and out of most European cities. It happened in 1492. What also happened in 1492? Come on, if you were in school, you probably heard the thing. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And he, I'm not going to say discovered the new world because he rediscovered. We know that the Vikings were there and the indigenous were already here. But he just came and he rediscovered the roots to the new, new world, which became a safe haven for the Jews out of persecution in Europe. Come on, they've been living in Canada and the U.S. for so long because it was safe for them after they were kicked out of most European cities in 1492. That's when we saw a tetrad of four blood moons. When was the next time we saw it? 1948, when, when uh, Israel was remade a nation after almost 2,000 years. When was the next time we saw a tetrad of four blood moons? 1967 when Jerusalem was won back for the first time in 2,000 years. And then here in 2023, you wonder why the nations are heading into Israel right now? We just had another tetrad of four blood moons. Every time that happens, something significant begins to happen to the nation of Israel. As Dr. Kirk said last week, we often misinterpret Bible end times because we think of it through a Western-focused mentality. It's not. It's an Israel-Hebraic-focused prophecy. And so every time we see these signs, there's things that begin to happen the timeline is accelerating. And I keep saying that we're on a timeline because we are. In, uh, in Je Jeremiah chapter 30, let's jump over there. How are we doing for time? Jeremiah chapter 30. And in verse 1 it says, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. So let's just sum up what Jesus said, or what God said to Jeremiah. This is important. Write it down. You know, I think that we, we are so lazy sometimes as Christians. We have zero expectation of the Lord speaking. When we come to church or when we read our Bible, when we take time to pray, you should have a notebook ready and have an expectation. He's going to speak to me. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to honor it. Well, that's a side note. He says, Jeremiah, what I'm about to tell you is important. Write it down. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And so long before it happened, Jeremiah, through the, through the Lord said that Israel is coming back to the land. And after 2,000 years, in 1948, they were brought back to the land because the Lord said it was going to happen. And it said that he gave it to them and they shall possess it. And I'm honestly disgusted by Christians that are aligning themselves with woke media saying Israel should give up the land. No, the Bible says it's their land and that's where they will be when the Lord puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. It will be the nation of Israel and they will have that temple mount when he puts his foot down. And you got to be careful who you align yourself with. They may say fancy things to you, but I tell you, what does the word say? He said, after this, I'm going to bring them back to the land because it's their land and they will possess it. And that happened in 1948. Why is that significant to us? Well, let's go back to Luke 21 where Jesus was teaching his disciples on the end times. He says in verse 29, he says, Then he spoke to them in a parable, or another way to say it, he used an illustration for them to understand. He told them a story that they could understand. He said, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. That may not mean anything to you as a Western-minded person, but the fig tree was the symbol of, of Israel. He said, you want to know what the times and the seasons look like? Look at the fig tree. 
amongst the other trees. Look at them amongst the other nations. He says, when they are already budding, you see and you know for yourself that summer is now near. So he's saying when you see Israel begin to blossom and bud again, you know the time is near. And so in 1948, they were brought back to be a nation. And you know what's happened to that land since they've been in it? It's begun to flourish. It's begun to prosper. No, All the last 2,000 years, whoever had that land, it was like desert. But when the Israelis are there, man, they produce 19. 95% of the produce that goes into the Middle East because the land prospers when they're in it. And you think of the land that they've given back. What happened when they gave it back? It turned back to a chaos-driven desert. And so he said, you want to know the times and the seasons? Look at Israel. When you see it budding, you know for yourselves that summer is near. And he didn't leave it there. He says, so you also, when you see these things happening, when Israel is restored to being a nation, know that the kingdom of God is near. Everyone say near. It's not something that's way, way, way down. It's near. He gets even more specific than that. I've been saying we're on a timeline. The next verse says, Assuredly, I say to you, the, genera the generation that sees this will by no means pass away till all things take place. That should cause you to pause. The generation that saw Israel made a nation is the last generation. That's why I'm saying we're on a timeline. We're bumping up to the last edge of allotted time. We can talk about how generations are measured. And in the Bible, they're measured different ways depending on what's being talked about. When it comes to a working class or the military, 40 years is a generation. Because within 40 years, you have completely recycled everyone through your workforce and through your military. That's generally how long we work, about 40 years. There's other times where the Bible measures generations between 70 and 80 years. And so which, which generation is he talking? Well, I'll tell you what the maximum is. The Bible says the maximum limit of a man's lifespan is capped at 120 years. It doesn't go beyond that. And so when you study centenarians, people who make it past 100, they usually approach around 120, the ones that live the longest, and they don't go much beyond that because that's the limit the Lord has put on mankind. So you want to know your absolute longest time frame that this can be? 2068. Because the nation was made in 1948, which means your maximum limit is 120 years. Come on. 40 years is not that long. And I don't even think the Lord will wait 40 years. But that's the maximum. I'm not saying I know when the Lord's coming back within that, but that's the maximum because that's the limit he put upon mankind. We are on a timeline. And so it should cause us to live different, to be a little bit less uh, complacent and sit back and be like, I've got time. No, you don't. There's only so much time left. The Lord is going to return. He's going to oh, split the sky. And with the shout of an archangel, Paul told the Thessalonians, we will meet him in the air. And then you're going to take seven years at the marriage supper of the Lamb, sitting and partying with God while the tribulation plays out. And then the Lord says, okay, guys, it's time. We're going back. And it splits the sky again. And he returns on a white horse with the name above all name tattooed on his leg. And he comes down with the saints in tow behind him all on there. So the first part is we go up. And then the seven years later, we come back with him. And he wraps it up, and we spend a thousand years here on earth through the millennial reign of Christ. And Paul said, now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to those believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. And what the Thessalonians were asking, they were very much interested in these things because they were facing intense persecution. And so they were saying, we must be in the tribulation. And so Paul wrote to them quite a bit in First and Second Thessalonians to tell them, no, no, you're not. 
And he says, I don't want you guys to grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God first the believers who have died will rise from their graves and then together with them we who are alive and remain on this earth will be caught up to the clouds to meet him in the air and then we will be with the Lord forever so be terrified by these words No, that's not what he said. He says, so encourage one another with these words. Let yourself get stirred up. This is a good day. There's no bad news for the believer. The Lord is going to return, and there's things that are going to happen to those who have rejected the Lord. But Paul told Timothy, God's desire is that none should perish. And that's why James says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter range. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, establish your heart. Make it stable and firm. Don't be moved to the left and to the right. Don't hit that ditch. Don't hit this ditch. Stay right in the center. The Lord's returning. You can know the season in your heart. Be prepared to stir yourself up and go and tell as many people as possible that Jesus loves them, that he's prepared a place for them. Now, you need to understand that this is just, as even last week, this is just a little bit. And we're not going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks. This is this. I just wanted to add some thoughts to last week. There's so much you can know about it, but I want you to know you can study and you can know, but don't let that affect your go. Jesus said, go into all the world. Not be, not be paralyzed. He said, go. And so you can study and you can know these things, and that's not a problem, but it should put a fire under your butt to do something. But as I said, this is just a little bit. This is just a little glimpse. We barely touched into I could have used so many scriptures just to talk about the rapture and the second coming and all these different things. We just don't have time. But if this maybe maybe this was like, okay, I don't understand or I don't know any of these things, you can know, and I, I'd love to help you with that. Um, if you're interested in more things, I really recommend um, Joseph Morse's book, End Times Made Easy. There is no bad news for the Christian. And he will take you through all the scriptures of the rapture. He'll talk to you about what will happen in the tribulation and what, what's next for you in all these things. You don't have to be ignorant unless you want to be ignorant. And so maybe if some of these things surprise you and you're like, oh, I don't know. I, I've got four copies of this that can borrow. Don't, I don't want you to take one of these if it's going to sit on your shelf for years and never touch it. But if you want to know more, there's, he has great information on more. Because the Lord is coming soon. We are on a timeline that he put us on, not that I put us on. You're bumping up against that upper limit, and that should fill our hearts with such joy. Jesus is coming. We are going to have so much fun together with him. Amen? Hallelujah. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that just as we've talked about today, that there were over 2,500 prophecies about your second coming. Lord, I thank you that we can be expectant and have a heart of joy and prepare ourselves to return with you. We thank you for the things that you've called us to do while we are here on this earth. I thank you, Lord, that you have good plans for us, plans to prosper us, plans for us to be in health. We thank you for the callings that you've placed 
Christ upon each and every one of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we shall walk them out in the time that we have. Lord, we are so excited to see you return. We can't wait to go and be with you forever. And so, Father, we honor you and we give you glory in this place, Lord. We give you honor, Lord. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good God and your mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. You are good, 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 good. Yes, you are. You are good. You are good, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, Pastor Robin, why don't you bring us in for a landing? And so what do we do from here? What we've been doing, we continue. Amen? That was the word the Lord gave to the church, uh, to this church on the start of the year, and it's to continue. You continue on. You try, you do your best to bring in the harvest. You tell everybody you can that Jesus is Lord and that they, they can avoid all that mess in the tribulation period if they just get to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so we will continue with our, in our tithes and offerings. And let's say this confession together we started last week. As I tithe and give offerings, I'm believing the Lord for souls and more souls, jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, benefits, sales and commissions, favorable settlements, states and inheritance, interest and income, rebates and returns, discounts and dividends, checks in the mail, gifts and surprises, finding money, bills decrease, bills paid off, blessings and increases. Thank you, Lord, for meeting all my financial needs that I may have more than enough to give to the kingdom of God to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, there's, there's been a provision put in place for people that will support and have God flow through them finances to the, for the church in these days to get bring the harvest in. Amen? You know, a farmer needs resources to be able to work the harvest. Can't just send out the combine with, with no money. You've got to put gas in it. You've got to do all these different things, right? You've got to have a place to store your, your goods. And you've got to move your goods. And so if we are to continue, we just continue doing that. Amen? And so that, that um, last time resources, you know, there's people that have sowed for years and years that have passed on, sowed into the kingdom, kingdom of God. There's still a harvest for that. And it's falling upon this generation, this last generation, to bring in that harvest with those resources. So you need to be open for that. Amen? Amen? Because we're blessed to be a blessing. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, the work care team is going to be up here in just a minute. If you need ministry, we will uh, look forward to blessing you and praying for you and ministering to you. Amen? Amen. So let's have some coffee and some fellowship, and you are all blessed.